In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We are very grateful to God the Father that in his infinite love for us, he's given us the greatest gift he possibly could give, which is no one less than God the Son, his Son. And it's this feast, this entrance of God the Son, who is the Word of God translated in human form. God the Son stays God, but takes on an additional nature. In addition to his divine nature, he takes on a human nature and becomes like us in everything but sin. And he enters into our world the way we ourselves saw the light of day. We made our first abode in the wombs of our mothers, and after that time of development inside the womb occurred, we entered into the world. We left the abode of our mother's womb to live in the world. And we were born as defenseless little babies needing our mother for nourishment, for cleansing, for rest, for protection, for health, for warmth. We, like every human being, were born totally defenseless. Even our eyesight was too underdeveloped to see that eventually would come. It boggles the mind that the creator of the universe, perfect God, perfect man now, came into our world as a defenseless baby. Just looking at him, you could not identify his divinity upon contemplating his infancy. He was like any baby, in complete dependence on his parents, especially his mother. There's so much to be learned here. The entire gospel is concentrated in infancy form, in embryonic form, in Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. What strikes us is the symbolic, Eucharistic nature of this birth. Bethlehem is a Hebrew word. It's the name of the village where Jesus was born. And it is no mere coincidence that it means house of bread, the first 
cathedral, the cathedral has its power because it houses a tabernacle, and in the tabernacle is Jesus' Eucharistic presence. Our Lord's presence was first made in that town called House of Bread because Jesus is the bread of God. And to reinforce that fact even more, he was placed on a manger. A manger is an object on which animals eat. Food for animals is placed on a manger. That points, again, that this little baby is also our divine nourishment. In a special way, the nativity event prophesies the passion of Jesus on the cross. He's laid on the wood of a manger. He enters into this world in seclusion. Relatively few people are present at the greatest historic event of the history of the universe. A handful of shepherds, a mom, a dad, surrounded by animals in the poverty of the cave that we also call the stable. The greatest event occurred, an event that would radically change the course of history. What does this event mean for us? A brief meditation certainly does not do justice to the richness of the many lessons the Holy Spirit invites us to draw from the Nativity. One powerful message. When Jesus is born, we are told a message is transmitted that God is eminently accessible. It's all about divine access. And it's all about divine excess. This nativity event reminds me of the book authored by the now St. John Paul, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, where he's questioned, why doesn't God give us a sign to make himself more credible? And St. John Paul, in his inimitable way, says that God has gone too far in manifesting his love for us. It would have been quite understandable if God appeared human, but that God is born in a stable, that our Creator makes his debut here on earth as a defenseless infant. God has gone too far. And God is accessible. We all have that delightful experience upon 
contemplating little baby, that all sorts of barriers and human protocols are left aside precisely because that little human being is a baby. We can speak baby talk to him or her. We could hold it and giggle with the baby and make the baby smile, giggle ourselves, basically dote on that baby in a way we can't do that with anybody else. Even a best friend, a parent, a sibling, we certainly cannot have the same familiarity with them as we would have with the baby. All protocol is pushed aside because we are expected to lavish affection on the baby. And we don't even have a remote temptation to put on airs or cut a good impression when we are dealing with an infant. And so Jesus appears that way. What's he telling us? I want you to approach me. I don't want any kind of inhibition in speaking to me and dealing with me and coming close to me and contemplating me. This birth of Jesus is a powerful invitation that our Christian faith, our Catholic faith, is not merely about observance, showing up for Mass, fulfilling a resolution to say morning prayers or night prayers, or merely academically agreeing with the contents of the Catechism, even though observance and knowledge of the faith and practice of devotions are important, what's at issue here is that we have a relationship with a person, with Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus is an overwhelming invitation of God saying, I want you to have a personal relationship with me. It's all about divine excess that God has really put himself out in manifesting his love for us. And he will become a worker, and then he will hang on a cross. St. Paul applies another moniker to the Son of God-made man, calling him a divine slave. His love is so great that his fulfillment is to serve us in many ways, to forgive us, to console us, to instill joy and happiness, to give us freedom, to find hope, to find meaning in suffering, meaning in death. This display of divine access and excess needs to affect us. I have plenty of experience of walking downtown amid big crowds and often I will be stopped and anxiety is written all over the face of individual or individuals who 
approached me and asked for prayers. They, I'm dressed in my clerical attire, and it's not totally uncommon that someone would pull me aside, ask for prayers, because they're burdened with a problem. I recall, even in an airport, the woman behind a ticket counter. After uh, I checked my bags, I heard uh, quick steps walking behind me, approaching me, and it was the woman behind the ticket counter, and asked me to remember her in prayer, that she had a number of burdens and wanted me to bring it to the attention of the Lord. In the practice again, this access to Jesus, this manifestation of the excessive love of God, what is this telling me? Well, it's the first revelation of Jesus in St. Luke's Gospel that the Son of God made man is introduced as good news of great joy. And the Gospel of St. Luke says it's for all the people. Everyone is invited to be beneficiaries of this good news of great joy. This rich and consoling phrase that is so often contemplated, how does this message in the practice affect others? How does that make a difference? In fact, because of this heavy emphasis on joy and happiness and reflected by the Christmas decorations and the Santa Clauses and the snowmen and the Christmas lights, etc. Many people are self-conscious that significant joy is just not present in their lives and that uh, the Advent season and the Christmas season is a time of a bit of sadness since they have a greater awareness that they're not fulfilled, not happy, not hopeful. How is it, then, he is good news of great joy? Well, to the degree that his access or accessibility is capitalized, to that degree he will communicate his joy. Jesus says it's for all the people this joy, this fulfillment, this freedom, this consolation. But how does that become a reality? Already, the birth of Jesus is a call to discipleship. The shepherds take to heart the angelic message that the divine infant is born in Bethlehem, and they adore him, they contemplate him. It's not an exchange of words, because after all, he just was born and babies don't talk yet, and Jesus being no exception. But they were in contact with him. They stayed with him. And they returned to their fellow shepherds, pumped, energized, with great joy. And they were convincing 
in their witness because this encounter with the divine infant transformed them and communicated and transmitted a joyful demeanor. They witnessed the joy of Christ. And not because of special information. Jesus is born. The Messiah is born. Did their fellow shepherds, their family members, their friends, turn to Jesus? But rather they turned to Jesus because the heart of Christ was superimposed on their heart. That there was something Christ-like in the shepherds that attracted them to Christ. As we look at the news, as we hear about the difficulties of our colleagues, of family members, as we are very much aware of serious problems that in many cases don't have a solution, or at least a human solution, we are tempted to perhaps lose hope. But this message of divine access, I bring you good news of great joy, is as valid now as it was over 2,000 years ago. What Jesus needs are followers who attest to the fact that he's the Prince of Peace, that he's that good news of great joy, in an imperfect way, in an insufficient way, we need to be good news of great joy. And maybe better said, that the Christ in us must transmit this good news of great joy. What resolution must we make? St. Jose Maria in many of his profound sound bites, says that charity is driven by piety, that the more pious we are, in other words, the more of a relationship we have with Jesus Christ, well, the greater is our charity. Why is that? Well, St. Paul says in Romans 5.5 that when we exercise piety, when we adore Christ, we are refueled in love. And the chief manifestation of love is always joy and peace, those two prominent subsets of charity that keep resurfacing throughout the gospel message, especially his birth and especially in the Last Supper that for our joy to be full, we need to keep Christ's commandments. And Christ's commandments is Christ himself. And to keep those commandments of Christ, we need to do what the shepherds did. Contemplate him, adore him. The Holy Father and his celebrated exhortation on the joy of the gospel makes it abundantly clear that this new evangelization will be giving someone 
an experience of the joy of Christ. It consists in witnessing the joy of Christ, giving the joy of Christ to others. So that that celebrated phrase coming from our first pope, 1 Peter 3, 18, be ready to give the reason for the hope that is within you. And in this culture, this post-Christian culture, I won't say formally, no one has formally rejected Christianity, but given the overpowering moral relativism that marks our society and this ignorance of the gospel, which is an ignorance of Christ, obviously, this ignorance of the natural law and the moral teaching of the church, we need to, in effect, prove that Christ is good news of great joy by being good news of great joy ourselves, which is a fruit of prayer. It's the fruit of an intensification of the presence of Christ in the heart of an individual. And more than doing a lot of correcting or preaching to people, this birth of Jesus instructs us that we need to wet the spiritual appetites of people to prompt that question, what makes you tick? Why are you good news of great joy yourself? Why this optimism? Why this affection? Why this kindness? And then we answer that question. It's not about me. It's about a loving source of charitable energy that is drawn from that heart of Christ, starting very much with his infancy. Part of this adoration of the Christ child is to see the humility of Jesus in Bethlehem, in the Eucharist, on the cross, to see this divine excess. St. Josemaria says, the humility of Jesus in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, on Calvary, but still more humiliation, more self-abasement in the most sacred host, more than in the stable, more than in Nazareth, more than on the cross. That is why I must love the Mass, our Mass, Jesus. And this adoration of the Christ child takes on its fullest meaning when we adore Jesus in the Bethlehem of our church, in the manger that holds that divine bread, the bread of God. We ask you, Lord, as we contemplate this event, that the imagination and the mind cannot ever come close to fully comprehending, that, Lord, you convert us to the need of living the new evangelization by first adoring you, spending time with you, getting to know you through prayerful contemplation and meditation so that we 
can make that good news of great joy real. We can't prove the truth of faith, that God take on a human form and be born as a baby. Uh, the greatest genius can't figure that one out. But nevertheless, we can make that event real to other people and how much people need Jesus Christ. We want to be converted to that truth, that he is for all people, and not as a luxury item, but as a real need, that freedom and fulfillment and joy must come from Christ. Healing, consolation, forgiveness. And so we bring our prayer to a close, asking our Lord for that conversion amid our busy schedule in an overly programmed culture. We want to be bound and determined to spend some quiet time with the Lord so that his good news of great joy, to be put metaphorically, rub off on ourselves so that we can proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And we put these sentiments in the hands of the Blessed Mother. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.